Driven by the effects of pandemic-related supply chain issues, along with everything from macroeconomic forces to basic consumer choices and more, the industrial sector is going strong and the U.S. is on a path to a manufacturing revival. On this episode, we traveled out to Boise, Idaho, site of the Industrial Asset Management Council's Fall Forum, to meet three real estate leaders attending the conference. We found out what's powering the asset class they focus on, manufacturing. The moment in time we're in now, the velocity and volume of manufacturing projects is 10 or more fold compared to the average over the last 20 years. That's A.J. Magner a vice chair at CBRE who runs a global advisory team that helps manufacturing and distribution organizations manage their real estate portfolios. We've done everything from tanks to tofu. It's a nice stretch of stuff we get to work on. That's Seth Martindale, Senior Managing Director for CBRE's America's Consulting Platform. Seth specializes in site selection and location incentives. And to provide insights from an occupier's perspective, we welcome a leader for a major manufacturer, David Verali, Director of Real Estate for Treehouse Foods. It is so specialized, right? That you have to have the power, you have to have the infrastructure and everything else, that, that it's just a much more in-depth process and struggle to figure out. David oversees a nationwide network of factories, distribution centers, offices, and more for this multi-billion dollar private label food producer. Treehouse makes products that hit the market under a variety of well-known brands, likely including some of what you put on the kitchen table or stock in your pantry each week. Coming up, morning coffee in Boise and a conversation about a specialty manufacturer, the nuances of this essential asset class, and all the ingredients of a big real estate story. I'm Spencer Levy, and that's right now on The Weekly Take. Welcome to The Weekly Take, and this week we are in beautiful Boise, Idaho, with David Varelli, Director of Real Estate Treehouse Foods. David, thanks for joining the show. Thank you very much. Then we have A.J. Magner. A.J., thanks for joining. Thanks, Spencer. And then we have Seth Martindale, who uh, did the correct thing this morning by bringing me iced coffee. Thank you, Seth. I'm trying to score points earlier. You see so, that? Yeah. We'll be nice to Seth today. So to start off the show today, why don't we just tell everybody who you are and what you do. David, why don't you tell us that? Treehouse Foods is one of the largest private brand food manufacturers. So roughly about $3.5 in sales. We operate in 17 categories, like crackers, cookies, pretzels, coffee, all those things. And then we make them for the large companies. So you don't see our name on anything, but we work with all the the large retailers. Great. So most important question, do you have any particular food item that's your favorite? So I do. Uh, The Trader Joe's peanut butter cups. Okay. Is one of ours. And so, yeah, that would be it. So we don't have much more to ask here today. Um, (laughs) You bring in it. Show's over. (laughs) So David, I know all of us are running out to Trader Joe's now to buy some peanut butter cups. I certainly am on my way back to my hotel. But David, let's pull the lens out just a little bit. Where are some of your facilities located? And what are some of your major considerations to to pick them? Well, so Treehouse as a company has basically grown through acquisition. We haven't had a lot of organic growth. We basically bought companies, inherited locations where they were. Um, And so that's a little bit different of a scenario just in terms of how we've established ourselves. So in total, we have 93 sites across North America. Uh, We have 26 manufacturing facilities. Um, We have some warehouses that are associated with those. And so those would be on locations 
but primarily like the, the large mixing centers, distribution centers, offices, all those are going to be leased. Everything else, plants and the plant warehouses are going to be owned locations. Mm-hmm. So one of the major differences between manufacturing and a just a big power box warehouse center is the equipment that's right. in there, which is really unique, really expensive. Right. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it is, right? So, so, I mean, I think any of our production facilities, I mean, there's extensive capital that has to go into those, like the infrastructure within the building as well as the equipment itself. And so being sure that the company is able to spread that cost over time, right? It makes more sense to own it than have to capitalize it on a five-year lease, a 10-year lease. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the cost of redeploying that equipment and moving it, that hinders you to stay where you are, right? That it's, it's going to be a big... Um, cost and incremental spend to move locations from one site to another. And I've also seen, this is particularly true in the auto industry, so I'm just going to ask your opinion in the food manufacturing industry, that very often this equipment is so unique that it's cheaper to start from scratch and build a new plant with new equipment than it is to try to repurpose existing equipment. Is that true? I would say to some instances, yeah, it is, right? And and it's so specialized. Um, Like we have some equipment at some of our facilities that's so old that we actually don't think we could move it, right? And so it either stays where it is or we have to get it new. So it, yeah, it is somewhat exceptional that way. And the thought is, A, with that cost of capital as well as what the cost would be to try to move those plants elsewhere, those need to be owned. So we need to have the stability of owning those locations. The mixing centers, uh, so most or some of the warehouse locations as well as offices, those are going to be leased facilities simply so we have flexibility within our network. Let me turn to you for a moment, Seth, on that same question. In terms of going to a place to pick a site, yeah. and obviously you've got the cost of land, you've got the availability of labor, but you have a lot of these older manufacturing areas that their better days economically were yesterday. How much are they attractive versus new places that might have a deeper labor source? I think like everything else, it's a matter of balance, right? The further outside of a major market you go, the more issues you've got with labor acquisition. It's going to be harder for you to get the infrastructure you need. It's obviously going to be cheaper and there's going to be more incentives there, but you got to balance. Can we really run our operation here for as cheap as it might be? I think most of the companies we're working with tend to lean towards less risk and pay more money, but that's just uh, operating profile for today. You know, that may change. The hard part is once a certain area of a city or a certain area of the country gets like a boost, somebody big goes in there, everybody else follows them. So hard to predict where that might be, but I think it's a good reason why sometimes states go big on economic incentives for one particular project because you win that one big one and everyone else says, well, they went there. There must be something going on there that's right. Let's go there as well. So all a balancing act. So AJ, let's just pull the lens back just a little bit more. Um, the manufacturing in the United States, it peaked and then it fell hard and now it's coming back. I think that's a fair way to put it Absolutely. about how manufacturing has a lot of it was offshored, but now we're talking because of post-pandemic it coming back. Tell us the big picture of where manufacturing is today and where you see it going. Yeah, from a real estate lens, I'd say let's look at it over the last 20 years. The moment in time we're in now, the velocity and volume of manufacturing projects is... 10 or more fold compared to the average over the last 20 years. There's a high demand for manufacturing projects. The uniqueness of the manufacturing plant itself as an asset class is much more like the traditional single family residential market, right? It's owner occupied. So there's not really uh, a big thirst for international capital and institutional capital 
to own a broth manufacturing facility, right? There's a niche of investors that will play in that space, but it's really an owner-occupied market from a, a real estate asset class standpoint um, for the reasons that we you know, have discussed today in terms of the stickiness of infrastructure, the stickiness of equipment, the specialization of labor markets, um, and just the comfort of owning and having 100% control of the fee of that site. That's how the asset class plays in the overall portfolio mix for most organizations. AJ, just tell us how the manufacturing practice somehow differs from our general logistics practice. Uh, it couldn't be more different, right? Uh, logistics, the variables you're dealing with are typically by nature movement and pro of product through the building and to the customer, right? To the building, through the building, to the customer. On the manufacturing side, you're often dealing with bulk inbound of raw materials where value is getting added to that bulk uh, inbound raw material, whether it be rock or grain or something else. And then you got to figure out how to get it to the plant, to the distribution center uh, in the most efficient way to customers. And then additionally, Seth will tell you the variables that are going into the site selection decision on a manufacturing are much different also because it's much more heavily weighted toward site infrastructure, incentives, labor, 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 labor. Um, and also a lot of environmental issues and environmental conditions. I did a site selection for a potato chip manufacturing group once. We were looking in the west half of the U.S., and a potato chip bag at a certain elevation will pop. So we had to be on the right side of the Rockies. We found this out about midway through, so we wasted a lot of time. Uh, but you have to be on the right side of the Rockies to get potato chips to L.A. market, basically. So um, there's a lot of interesting things that go into manufacturing site selection that really make my job fun. That's pretty cool. I should also note that we are in Boise, so we are contractually obligated to mention the word potato at least. <laughs> right, so we've, go. we've, got one, we've got one or two down. Cha-ching. <laughs> Done. So, Seth, labor, site selection, local incentives. There's a hundred directions we can go here, but where do you start the conversation with somebody looking to put a plant in the United States? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult because it depends on what they're doing. We've done everything from tanks to tofu. It's a nice stretch of stuff we get to work on. Um, what I would say is typically labor, as AJ mentioned, tends to be one of the most important factors we're looking at. Frankly, if you don't have enough people to work at the facility, it doesn't make any difference how awesome it is. Nobody works there, it doesn't work. So we tend to look at labor a lot. You could say the same thing with a distribution center, but the labor is usually different. It's a skilled trade that you typically need. So whether that's a tool and die operator, a CNC manufacturer, an electrical engineer, whatever it may be, those are a little bit harder to find. For me, the other big one that I think not a lot of people talk about, but I think it's going to be very, very important here real soon is the infrastructure requirements. AJ alluded to it earlier, especially with food manufacturing. Typically, that's a lot of water. And as you guys probably know in the news, water is becoming harder and harder to come by. So that's going to be interesting to see how that plays out as we go a little bit forward in the future. So. I think environmental resiliency is also an issue that is becoming a top-line topic when we're doing site selection in terms of not just the earthquake, hurricane, mass impact of this mass event, but sort of the baseline that we're seeing, you know, the hottest summer of record on Earth this summer and how that's impacting the inside the box and how it's impacting labor in terms of executing their job in a, in a plant. It's, it matters. The other thing that's kind of interesting, too, is a manufacturing plant, at least from my perspective, tends to have a longer life. So the decisions you're making are like 30-plus year decisions. So maybe temperature is 
on the borderline of whether or not you need to take it into consideration today, but 30 years from now, it's a lot different. Same could go with climate change and impact on being near the water. I mean, there's a variety of different issues that occupiers, when they're building a new plan, have to take into consideration. So, uh, AJ, turning to you, tell us a little bit more about your practice. Uh, is it global? Tell us the types of companies you represent and some of the unique issues you might have by industry, starting with food. Sure, yeah. So we represent, <laughs> I love the tofu to tanks thing, Seth. So not, we're not dealing with tofu or tanks specifically, but uh, we have a wide spectrum of manufacturing organizations that we support. So we've got building materials, uh, electrical components, uh, consumer products, food manufacturing, and our practice is primarily adding value by outsourcing the corporate real estate activities that historically when these organizations had large internal real estate organizations, um, they self-performed, right? And over time, the pendulum has swung. And instead of having multiple service providers that are not necessarily communicating or talking to each other customarily, our team's bringing together all these experts, the local market experts, the local brokerage experts, and really building the business case for an individual site based on the company's business case of needing a production capacity. That's really what we're doing. So that's at the front end. Yeah. But then once the facility is built, we're also providing services there. Is that correct? Absolutely, yeah. In the industrial space, one element that uh, we've unfortunately had to focus on from an occupier perspective is the uh, large jumps in rents in the market. And we've had to really become very succinct communicators when it comes to getting the C-suite's attention on what's gonna happen to their portfolio holistically as it's impacted by what's happening in the market. So if David, by way of example, has 50 lease sites with all the lease end dates approaching in the next seven years, we're having to build a portfolio view of all the fair market value assessments that's going on in the market, where you are today, where that book rent or gap rent is today, and what that lift means from an enterprise value perspective to the organization when you take the multiple of what that organization's trading at and what that means to the company overall. So that's what you need to do to get the C-suite's attention. And otherwise, you're just going to take a beating every time you have a, a, a new lease renewal coming up. And they're like, why is my rent doubling in the Inland Empire? And it's like, well, we told you this was happening holistically. So, um, so yeah, it, it takes a little bit uh, higher view on the portfolio to get the attention of the C-suite. I might add, I think, so the rent is obvious, right? That's something that we're all dealing with, and, it, and it, it's certainly been a problem in terms of just renewing sites. But I think the other is, like, even components from construction, the lead time on those, the timing. I mean, it used to be that, that if someone came to you and they said, hey, I need, I need site ready in three months, yeah, we can do that. And all of a sudden, that timeline has shifted dramatically as well. So you really have to constantly give information to be sure they understand what the market is with, Absolutely. with yeah, rents, timing, and, and everything else. We have a terrific colleague of ours. His name is James Breeze. He runs our industrial research on the landlord side. And I just pulled up one of his slides because I think it's important that people understand the entire supply chain, what these costs are. And I'm just going to read a few figures from James on what percentage of your cost is rent. And so this is the breakdown of logistics costs, according to James Breeze. And so transportation costs, 45 to 70%. Think about that. 45 to 70%. Fixed facility costs, 3 to 6%. Yes, your rent may be going up at these stratospheric levels, but if you put that facility in a more strategic spot, you might be saving yourself some money on trucking and other costs. Seth, what's your point of view? Let me politely disagree. So for the manufacturing component of it, yeah, there's a transportation side of it, but 
if you can't manufacture anything, the transportation doesn't matter anymore. You don't have any product to deliver. What does it matter? So if you're talking about distribution centers, sure, that transportation costs really relevant. Talking about a manufacturing facility, you keeping that facility up and running is critical. It's the only thing you really care about, which is why when we saw COVID, the equation of how much risk do we have in our system to keep things running in the manufacturing system totally got rebalanced. And now you're seeing that take effect here as we see a lot of reshoring back into the U.S. Someone took a really big wrench and threw it into our machine that was working pretty well, and now we're having to figure out how the new machine's going to work. The other thing I would add to Seth's comment, Spencer, is uh, if you look at those cost categories you just rattled off, those are all variable cost. If I make one half less whatever widgets I'm making, my transportation's likely going to go down proportionally, half, rough, or mi uh, plus or minus. However, real estate is illiquid, long-term commitments, and immobile. So I can't take it and move it. I can't get out of it very easy. And I'm usually signing a lease for at least five years, sometimes 10, 15, 20. So the compounding nature of that commitment that's going in front of the board, whereas you got spot rates on freight week to week, month to month, as opposed to going to an organization and saying, hey, I want a $150 million lease commitment, it just raises the profile in the organization when you're going through the corporate LOA and, or level of authority, sorry, level of authority and approval process. I think you brought up a great point, and, and David, I'd like your point of view on this, because when we're dealing with real estate of different types, so the difference between, say, a suburban office building and a medical office building is they may look identical from the outside, but the amount of redundant power, the amount of redundant air conditioning, other things make a medical office building a lot more expensive, a lot more risky to run than would be a traditional office building. How does that work in a, say, a warehouse versus a manufacturing site? I want to say the warehouses are easy, but they're kind of easy, right? I mean, so it, it, it's a shell of a building. You have your dock equipment. Maybe you have air conditioning. Probably you don't. Maybe you have fans. So that piece of it is easier to solve for. I mean, I think the manufacturing, the, the fact that it is so specialized, right, that you have to have the power, you have to have the infrastructure and everything else, that, that it, it's just a much more in-depth process and struggle to figure out. So in terms of the process, we're talking about not just getting the goods to market. We're talking about the variables beyond cost. Let's go to the variables beyond cost, because we can all agree doing things more efficiently, cheaply. We all agree on that. But there are some things that are really scarce, starting with labor. And how much does labor play into your world, Seth? And how do you advise clients like David? I mean, labor is a huge part of any decision. If you can't hire the people, you, you can't operate a facility, which in the end of the day is going to be problematic. Along with labor, I think you got things like infrastructure, not necessarily the, like the cost of electricity or the cost of rail, but is it available? Can you actually get it? Which is problematic, right? If you can't get the power you need and you can't expand the facility the way you want to, that's going to be a problem. If you need to put a facility on the West Coast and or the Western region and you can't get any water, that's going to be a problem. So I think companies are having to face these decisions around, can they even get the things they need to operate the facility at all? And I think mean, the question's becoming like, do you want to get cheap and really risky in terms of a facility you want to do? Or do you want to get expensive and play it safe? And I'd, I'd argue that most of our clients are leaning towards the uh, go expensive and play it safe just to make sure that the facility will run long-term, even if it costs a little bit more. I think that's also the business case for reshoring manufacturing, right? We had a customer uh, that recently literally built a plant making the same exact product next to a plant that they're closing down. And the labor intensity at the new plant is much lower. The labor quality and training is much higher. 
The old plant looked like a manufacturing plant. The new plant looks like a clean room with a few guys that have engineering degrees running a whole bunch of automation at in producing the product at like a five-time fold productivity rate. And I think if you were looking at this business decision 30 years ago, that wouldn't have been the same conclusion that the organization would have made because you wouldn't have had the labor shortage that we're facing today. You probably would have looked offshore at a lower cost market because the resiliency of the supply chain was perceived to be a lot higher than it is today. Also, I just think the political climate today is a little bit different where I think there is a uh, China plus one strategy going on broadly in supply chains. And I think there's a, a bias now within organizations to decide to keep it closer to the market that's being served. I've seen that change. I mean, I started my career in corporate real estate in the mid nineties and I felt like a hatchet man. All I did was close plants in North America, clean them up and sell them. And I've done more site selections in the last three years than I did in the previous 25. David, how do you deal with skilled labor versus cost of labor and all these other issues? So Treehouse's portfolio is U.S. and Canada. Okay. So we're kind of global, kind of yeah. North America-centric, right? And it's interesting, I think, as AJ was talking about the, the whole labor piece of this, I even think probably pre-COVID, Companies had a different perspective on, are we going to be willing to pay for the automation and it changed how we're producing things in plants? And probably the answer to that was no. I think post-COVID, people are looking at it very, very differently and coming out of what we've been going through with the labor shortages uh, and the struggles plants have had in maintaining manufacturing, that all of a sudden, that's probably something they're willing to look at a lot closer, if not pursue altogether, just because we need to overcome those challenges that we've had previously. Let's talk about the system for just a moment. So when we had uh, the CEO of uh, Maricold on this show, he talked about what was known as the quote-unquote the cold chain, meaning that when you take a Trader Joe's peanut butter cup, and by the way, first of all, where do you manufacture them? How do you get it to the store? So Wilmersdorf, Pennsylvania is where that plant manufactures those items. And so I guess we kind of have a, a bifurcated network, right? So you have ambient temperature warehouses, and then we also have the frozen warehouses that we make refrigerated dough, frozen waffles, and items like that. And so we do, we have two distinct supply chains uh, that we have to operate within. The ambient, which is usually easier to solve, easier to pick locations, and then the cold freezer areas where, I mean, it's much more expensive and challenging to find those locations, particularly if you are in a tertiary market where you're producing these items. So there's a Trader Joe's literally 50 feet from where we're sitting right now today. I walked right past it, and I, I and everybody else here is going to go load up on peanut butter cups. But so you manufacture these things in Pennsylvania. I presume you freeze them, and then you ship them to somewhere, then it makes its way to Boise. How many different facilities do you think this peanut butter cup went to before it made it here to Boise, Idaho? We want to touch an item as few times as possible. And so we want to get it to Trader Joe's as quickly as we can, get it in their network, and then they're the ones that are going to distribute it out. So I think it's a little bit easier from our perspective, but in the great process, it's one that has some complexities on, on how you get something from Pennsylvania to Boise, Idaho, or elsewhere. So Seth, we had on this show a, a green grocer uh, that had about uh, 300 locations in the United States, and they said they would not put a store more than, I believe it was 200 miles from any distribution center because they because they were fresh foods and needed to be that proximate right. to the end user. How do you play into that proximity when you're dealing with manufacturing? 
Sure. And there's plenty of examples out there. What I would say is when proximity to either distribution centers or retail locations come into play, we map those and say, hey, how important is it to be near these? And if we need to, can we add weights to all of them and basically put pins on a map and say, how close do we need to be? Where's that, what we would call the circle of indifference on a map of the U.S. look like? So that's definitely part of what we take into consideration. But I would argue that for most of the major manufacturing plants we're working with, that circle is pretty big. They serve a pretty large geography. We're talking complete to west Western United States or Eastern United States. So usually it's a little bit bigger, but it does come into play quite often depending on what we're working on. Mm -hmm. But food is a unique item because it's perishable, right? right? And so the cold chain and proximity, particularly if you don't freeze it. So uh, David, let me ask you that next question. Though we are all big fans of peanut butter cups, do you manufacture any goods that aren't frozen? And how do you distribute that type of good to the market? So we do, right? And I mean, so whether it's crackers, pretzels, cookies, all of, like we have a lot of items, right, that, that are going to be in the ambient network, but they all follow the same model, right? So like we produce them uh, like Manawa, Wisconsin, uh, but then we have to figure out, okay, so it goes to our bigger DCs, goes out to the customers. And again, we try to minimize touches within our network uh, before it gets to the customer, just to be sure that, uh, I mean, we keep costs and everything, complexity, uh, as simple as possible. To David's point around touching things less in the supply chain, that same argument can be made for Mexico. A lot of the companies that we're working with, they think about Mexico and they say, well, that's an extra two or three touches as we get it across the border and so on and so forth. So that kind of hurts that decision. But at the same time, significantly cheaper. There's a, a lot of benefit to doing it there as well. The point I wanted to make is, we never used to see comparisons between like Monterey and Mexico and Atlanta. That financial analysis never used to happen. Now it's happening all the time. So I have a colleague in Mexico City. Her name is Yasmin Ramirez. She does exactly what I do for Mexico. And I mean, I talk to her more than I've ever talked to her in my almost 20 years at CBRE. So Mexico and probably to a lesser extent Canada are definitely on the map, especially as we see that reshoring back in. So it's going to be interesting to see how that all plays out. Let's now talk about the pandemic briefly. I know it's come up a couple times today, and I understand how rents went up, but tell me some of the other changes that happened to our practice pre and post pandemic. That's a great question. I mean, what I would say is the influx of industrial projects we've had since COVID has just been crazy. I mean, we were already busy and now we're crazy busy. And I think I was saying before that the equation, like you were saying before, the resiliency issue associated with manufacturing abroad has really come up a lot. Now, I think companies are basically saying, you know, the cheap labor rates in China were great, but now we're realizing that if something happens that disrupts the entire system and we can't get our product from China to the U.S., that's something that we can't take. So we need to move maybe not all of that manufacturing capacity, but at least some of it back to the United States. Frankly, I think there's probably some federal and national security issues there too. So I think that's all kind of aligned to work together as we're seeing all the reshoring of all that manufacturing back to the U.S. I think a market impact post-COVID is, it's almost the second ring of the ripple though. It's not the first ring of the ripple is there's a lot of nimbyism associated with industrial development today. There's a lack of sites whereby you, you know, uh, five years ago you went to a community with a large manufacturing uh, project and you'd get welcomed with open arms, incentives, come, here's land, here's how you got to do it, here's our people. And now uh, communities and political entities are really taking a harder look and say, man, do we really want this use in our community? Do we want 200 trucks a day? Do we want this emission profile? Do we want this product stored in our community? And there's a lot of, as often happens in human nature, a little bit of overreaction, I believe, in terms of the pushback on industrial development. But it's certainly constraining sites, the, both the, comp, the combination of this nimbyism that's happening and the large takedown of sites over the last five years, seven years. 
is combining to create a limited supply of sites that are uh, particularly manufacturing sites. Uh, Seth and I worked on a project in uh, Kentucky, Tennessee area in Ohio uh, two years ago. We really needed rail. It was a must-have requirement. I think in a 450-mile radius, we had three legitimate sites with rail served and, and meeting the other variables we need. So I think that's probably the biggest change in terms of executing for customers in the markets post-COVID is that limited availability. Dave, let me turn to another issue as it deals with the pandemic a little bit. One of the areas of resiliency that we heard about was increasing inventories because people were afraid, well, you know, we're not going to have these goods. Uh, the, the, the good delivery is at risk. And so we've heard about some uh, groups adding more inventory as a result. Have you seen any of that in your business? Through COVID and probably until relatively recently, I mean, our plants were basically producing everything they could. Uh, and so we produced it, we sold it, we shipped it out. And so I think probably one of the challenges that we have encountered is, uh, you know, maybe we're going to be able to ship out a certain percentage of what a customer actually ordered. So they take that into account. So the next time they place an order, they're going to say, well, I'm going to order 100 units, even though I need 75 thinking if I get that 75, it's going to be all good. And so I think that that's been a struggle that we've worked through is that uh, maybe kind of getting the trust and being sure everyone is communicating to one another uh, what the actual order needs to be, as opposed to maybe having a little bit of a, a buffer in there that they're adding on to that total that they're looking for. Um, so let me ask a rhetorical question. Is it possible to have too many peanut butter cups? <laughs> uh, I don't My waistline. I would yeah. not try this one as well, yeah, yeah. So, David, turning to you now on the ESG question, how does that play into um, your site selection and your operation of your existing sites? We focused on three different areas, so environmental and climate, uh, people and communities, and then products and operations. From a real estate perspective, um, th the big change is uh, all of a sudden there's maybe more visibility to how real estate can impact those, whether it's things like lead certification, ensuring that you use sustainable materials in the construction, uh, an interest in solar and incorporating that into the site, as well as a focus on the employees to be sure that you provide them an optimal place to work. Um, that, that all those have been factors. But I think one of the things that is maybe an interesting change that hopefully as a company that you're able to take advantage of is for a lot of our locations, I mean, landlords have the same ESG requirements as well. And so I think the new thing, I mean, within the past two months, we've had a lot of major landlords reach out to us and say, hey, we want to partner with you to meet their ESG goals, our ESG goals. And so maybe the positive is, right, if all these people are striving and pushing to get results that we're going to be able to get there quicker, that sense of camaraderie is not something that's always been in place between the landlord and tenant. And so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I mean, to your point earlier, Spencer, I mean, a lot of the machines that actually manufacture the goods that we're using now are like being developed today. So it's tough to tell what the impact will be, but I think a lot of the goal is let's use as little power as we can. Let's use as little water as we can in that process. We're seeing that all over the manufacturing companies we're working with. Fuel mix is becoming important, and we've got these companies that have come out and made public statements. We're going to do X, Y, and Z with ESG. But also, there's a cost savings to that. If you use less power, it's going to be cheaper for you to produce your good. If you use less water, it's going to be cheaper. And that's today. Those things are just going to get more and more expensive. So the less you use, the better you're going to be as an operator. So I'm going to ask everybody for their final thoughts here. And so uh, why don't we start with you, David, and uh, 
Treehouse Foods. Just tell us what your next five years looks like from a real estate standpoint. What are some of the key thoughts you would give to our listeners about manufacturing, where we are, where we're going? From a treehouse perspective, I think it's exciting, right? So uh, we are looking at growth, looking at opportunities. And so uh, we are, are going to be expanding. That's always a whole lot easier and better of a scenario than when you're on the other side of that coin. The other piece of that, though, is our network is going to be evolving as well. And so trying to be sure that whatever we put in place today has some flexibility component to that so that we can incorporate what changes come down the road over the next five years, as you said. Great. Seth? I mean, the way I see it, we've got two really big issues, labor and infrastructure. We're trying to fix the problem. We're putting it into elementary schools even to say, hey, a skilled trade job is a successful job where you can make a lot of money. The problem is that's elementary schools. It's going to be a while before those people hit the workforce, so it's going to take some time to get there. On the other side, you got infrastructure constraints all over the place. The federal government, as everybody's seen, is throwing a lot of money at that problem as well. And that's going to help. The federal government's got a big bazooka they can use with money, but it takes time for those things to get implemented. So there's going to be this gap where if we attend to bring this much manufacturing back into the U.S., we're going to have some constraints both on labor and infrastructure, but eventually we'll get over it. It's just how painful will that gap be before we get there is the interesting question that we're trying to figure out for our clients. AJ? I think... The globalization of our supply chain got ripped apart in COVID. And I think production capacity is going to go much closer. We're seeing it in the U.S., but it's going to happen globally. It's going to go much closer to end user and end purchaser consumption. So whether that be cell phones in Vietnam instead of China or cell phone production or semiconductor production coming to North America, I just think the bias in the highest level of manufacturing organizations of those decision makers is going to be, let's just get our capacity close to and proximate to our end consumers. And I think that's going to go on for another 10, 20 years. Well, thanks everybody for joining the show today at the Industrial Asset Management Council's meeting here in beautiful Boise, Idaho. My third visit to Boise in three months. I'm glad I'm here. David Virali, Director of Real Estate Treehouse Foods. Thanks for coming. Thank you very much. AJ Magner, Vice Chairman CBRE. Thanks, AJ. Thanks, Spencer. It was a pleasure. And Seth Martindale, who brought me my iced coffee, Senior Managing Director, America's Consulting. Thank you, Seth. Thanks, Spencer. Appreciate it. In the weeks to come, we'll turn our attention to the big picture of other asset types, such as ports and data centers, and we'll focus on people too, leaders and leadership, including a visit from former United Airlines CEO Oscar Munoz to talk about his work and the growing presence of Latinos as an influential demographic. We'll have a return visit from author Jacob Morgan to talk about his new book, Leading with Vulnerability, and lots more. It's a packed fall season on our show. Meanwhile, you can visit our website, cbre.com slash the weekly take. And you can send us questions or comments via the talk to us button on our homepage. Don't forget to share the show as well as subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen. For now, thanks for joining us. I'm Spencer Levy. Be smart, be safe, be well. 